Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so it's been a while, and we, we did, you know, like those sub-series, and now we're finally back into Romans. And uh, because of last week, and then just the way that we did Romans before, if you're following along in the books, uh, the Romans book, this is two sermons in one. So you have lots of space to write down the notes, just write down every word, you can be great. Um, but you'll notice it's like, it's two sections in Romans. And then if you're following, if you sometimes listen to other locations' messages, we're going to be a week behind because we didn't have church last week. So... A lot is happening there as far as the book goes. doesn't really matter. The teaching is the same today. Okay. Um, well, let me tell you. So last week, I was driving. I was, I was out in West Des Moines, and I was coming uh, to the downtown location. <clears throat> and I was driving uh, my daughter's car, and I'd driven out just fine to West Des Moines. And as I'm going, going in, all of a sudden, about 50 miles an hour, my car it starts to shake. I'm like, hmm, this isn't good. Like, and then at 60, it starts to like, it's like vibrating. And I'm like, I'm going to lose a tire. Like, this is crazy. I had never had this happen before. And then uh, I'm on the on-ramp, getting onto 235. And there's this semi, like 80,000 pounds, like 12 feet from my bumper. And semi don't usually tailgate. This guy was on me. And I was going fast, fast enough, I thought. And I was like, I'm going to die. Um, no sermon this week. I'm going to die. Uh, <laughs> So when you're in a situation that, you know, you have a car breakdown or something happens, is there someone that you call? I did. I was like, I got a guy. I know a guy. Uh, his name is Cole, and he can answer all my car questions. And if not, he asks the right people. And so uh, I called up Cole, and I'm like, hey, Cole, I'm going to die. Help me out. Tell me, what's, tell me is my car actually going to, am I going to lose a wheel? And then he laughed, and he said, no, you probably have snow in your tires, and your wheels are unbalanced. Like, oh, Great. It's free. It was free. So I, my car got fixed. I took some snow out from the tires. Um, he helped me. Um, I share that because Cole, he's someone that I trust. He's like, he's my, he's my car. I actually have a couple of car guys, but he's, he's one of my, my car people. And I have other people. Like uh, if I have a lawyer question, my dad, he was a lawyer for 40 years. So I, I call my dad. Dad, help me out. Uh, if there's like a child welfare question, my mom, she's a social worker. Mom, what do you think about this situation? Can you help me? But I have in all kinds of areas of my life, there's people I just trust more than others that I think this is the one. Uh, and as, as Americans, I was thinking, are there people that we trust as a society? Because I bet you have people like that in, in certain areas. But just as a society, do we trust other things that are people that we trust? And I was struggling because we just came out of a political season and I don't trust them. <laughs> all the ads that kept coming to my house, I'm like, dude, this is crazy. They're spending so much money on things that go immediately in my trash. Um, don't trust that. And then I was thinking, like, as a society, like, um, one of the most trusted professions is doctors. But I think as a society, even that, like, the medical field, some people have started to trust that less. Um, and I was like, well, what, what do people trust? And I came up with one thing. What does everyone trust? Uh, Google Maps. <laughs> we all trust Google Maps. Um, and if you have a story where you did and it, like, drove into the lake, I don't want to hear about it. We all trust it. Um, I'm talking about trust. Why am I talking about trust? Because... Uh, if, you want to, if you want to know why Paul chose the person he chose in Romans chapter 4, it's because he wants to take the most trusted person, the person the Jews would have called and said, what, 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 is, what should we think about this? It would have been Abraham. They would have said, Abraham, teach us about justification. Teach us about righteousness. Teach us about... And then that's who that, so that's who the rabbis cited. They, they went back to Abraham. And so when Paul is explaining justification by faith... That, that the way that we're made right before God is not by doing good things, but by believing in the finished work of Christ. He says, I need Abraham to be on board. 
Abraham's the person they trust the most is actually also who I trust, who, who God has used. They have to see it. And so chapter three, Romans chapter three is all about the theology behind it. Like he like breaks down why that is. And then chapter four is, and here's my example. Uh, you all should believe this too. Um, and so what I hope that you leave today with when, you're, when you go home, what do I want you to remember? Uh, is that you should walk confidently in the grace of God for salvation. Really, we're talking about God's grace a lot. You should walk confidently in the grace of God for salvation. How we're going to get there, uh, the outline, three points. We're going to talk about Abraham. Uh, we're going to talk about David and how he supports what Abraham is also said. And then we're going to talk about the offense of grace. It sounds weird. It's true. The offense of grace. So starting with Abraham. Uh, how did the Jews understand Abraham? Who did the Jews think Abraham was? Because it's different than the way that Paul talks about it. So we're going to compare these two a little bit. Verse 1 and verse 2, chapter 4, it says, uh, What then will we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, has found? If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. So first thing is that Abraham, he's our forefather. They believe that Abraham was their forefather. Uh, he's seen as the most distinguished man of the Old Testament. Uh, he is really, he, he's the, the OG. He's the original Jew. Um, it's who they look to. He's the trump card. If you play cards, uh, it's, it's, you know, like a trump, a trump suit. It's like, you know, you've got spades, clubs, diamonds, hearts. Let's say you play like the ace of diamonds, but the trump suit is this special suit that's above everything else. You could play like the two, which is pathetic, but if it's trump, it's higher than the ace, it wins. Abraham, to them, is the winner. Whatever Abraham says, that's what we're going to go with. And so he's the forefather. He's the one that they trust. Abraham was also perfect. At least this is what the Jews believed. Abraham was perfect. Uh, there are many rabbis who are teaching that his whole life was perfect. So the book of Jubilee, this came out around AD, I'm sorry, BC at 100. It says that Abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the Lord and well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. Uh, and what they, what they translate that to is, so the, the Old Testament has the Mosaic Law. And that came 400 plus years after Abraham. They thought that Abraham obeyed perfectly the entire Mosaic Law 430 years earlier. He was perfect. That's what the rabbis were teaching. They're saying he's, he's totally perfect. Um, the third thing the Jews believe is that Abraham obeyed, and that's what made him righteous. Because he did all these things right, he is righteous. Like before God, he's got good standing before the Lord. He doesn't need forgiveness. He doesn't need anything else. He's had perfect obedience. It was simple for them. Fourth, the Jews believe that Abraham, he brought salvation to the Jews. So how did the Jews think about, they may not have used the word salvation necessarily, but how did the Jews think that they were in good standing before the Lord? What was the thing they looked to? Circumcision. Uh, and that's why it said circumcision four million times in the passage. <laughs> they looked to circumcision. And circumcision began with Abraham. He was the first one that God gave this, this act to. So you look at Genesis chapter 17, and what's just happened is, is God has um, spoken to Abraham. He says, I'm going to give you all these generations, more than the stars in the sky. And then uh, a number of years later, right before he has Isaac, he, 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 um, he gives him this promise of circumcision. And he says, it's a sign before me and before all people that you're mine. Uh, Genesis seventeen thirteen. He says, my covenant, my promise, my covenant, will be marked in your flesh as a permanent covenant. If any male is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that man will be cut off from his people. 
he has broken my covenant. And so he says, so this is right before. So he's an old man, and he gets circumcised. But this is the first act, and it's a sign, it's a seal, meaning it, it points to something, and it's pointing to the promise of God and the guarantee of God that he's going to take care of these people. Now, Romans 2, we've already covered that. That talks about true circumcision is on the inside. It's the heart. But uh, in a practical sense right here, he's, he's saying, this is, this is the, the intro to you. This is the sign and the seal. Um, and so what the Jews believed about Abraham is that he was, he was the forefather, he was good, he was perfect, that if you had an example, he, it was from him, and he's, he's the beginning. And so Paul wants to explain true righteousness is, where it comes from, he needs to show that Abraham was righteous, not by obedience to the law. Why is Abraham righteous? Not by obedience to all that God has said, but by faith. He has to show that. Um, so how did Paul, Paul views Abraham a little bit different. How does Paul view Abraham? Well, first, Abraham was the forefather. That's the same. So I said it's different. That's actually the same. They're both like, yeah, he's the original. We got you. Uh, we're with you. Second, we start seeing some differences. How did, how did Paul view Abraham? Abraham and his family were pagans. I mean, they were not God followers. And uh, this was different because the Jews said, even some rabbis taught that even from the age of three, Abraham was perfect. So just my little kid, he, he already, he already was, was being perfect. But in Joshua... Joshua 24.2, you can look that up later if you want. What they say is, like, is that Abraham grew up and his family is worshiping other gods. And then God calls him out and brings him to this place. Uh, and it, if that happened today, at, at the time that this was written, he would have been called a Gentile. Because that, that, he's worshiping other gods. He's not worshiping uh, the one true God. And so Paul, he, kind of, he brings this to the light in the way that he talks about this passage and the way he talks about Abraham in verse 5. He says, but the one who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly. Who's the ungodly? Abraham was the ungodly while he worshiped the other gods. His faith is credited for righteousness. The one who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, like Abraham, his faith is credited for righteousness. Uh, he was a rebel who God saved. Third way that Paul talked about Abraham, thought about Abraham, is that Abraham cannot boast before God. Uh, Abraham's great, but he can't boast before God. I, I have a friend growing up, my best friend growing up. His name is uh, Molson Olson, Matt Olson. And Molson's the best. Uh, he was two years younger than me, and he lived across the street. And we, we played together sports every day. Um, Molson, he comes from good stock. His, his, both his parents were amateur bodybuilders. And so he has a, a good genetic line, which was important because we played sports. And if I wasn't two years older, it would have been really tough for me. Um, but luckily, we played. It was awesome. Good friends. And he told me this story about after, after I graduated, when he was still in high school, about a goal that he had. He was in uh, Coach Davis's gym class, and he decided he wanted to set the Owatonna High School record for most goals in gym class floor hockey. It's a pretty esteemed title. Um, <laughs> so this was Molson's goal. He's like, I'm going to have the most goals in gym class as we play floor hockey. And so he set, out, he set out with his goal, and um, I don't remember all the exact details. These are close, though, is that he scored over 100 goals in gym class. And, and can you just imagine this? Though? Molson, he's a senior. He's a physical specimen. He's played hockey since he was probably four, maybe five. Uh, he's in gym class with kids that are two, three years younger than him, boys and girls, and he's just lighting them up. Like, he's, like, not taking the puck away. You're not allowed to lift the puck. He's shooting it however he wants, whenever he wants. Um, 
And by the end of gym class, he told me he had scored over 100 goals and gotten kicked out of gym class 11 times. <laughs> he was too good. Uh, Davis kept telling him to, to chill out, and, um, and he, he told me, he, he, he said, you're going to kick me out? He says, I'm cocky, but I can back it up. <laughs> that, was his, that became Molson's motto. I'm cocky, but I can back it up. And um, honestly, Molson probably was the best floor hockey player in Owatonna gym class history. Like, uh, and I say that because who scored that many goals? Not those other kids in the class. They knew it. They knew he was the best. And it, may, it sounds like kind of weird to boast about this thing, but my point is Molson deserves glory for what he did in that gym class. He should get praised. He was awesome. Probably a little violent, but like he was, he was, <laughs> he was awesome. So compared to his peers, he gets glory. He can boast. But if you take Molson's skill set and you put it before the Lord, can Molson boast? No. <laughs> what does God get? God's like, Molson's like, hey, I scored over 100 goals. And God's like, yeah, who gave you your hands or your feet or your eyes or the ability to speak and boast? You know, like, um, God would laugh. Now, before man, we, he can boast. Before God cannot, and it's the same with Abraham. Before man, Abraham has lots of areas of his life that you'd be like, that's praiseworthy. He deserves some glory. But before God, he cannot. And in Romans chapter 3, uh, we hear why not. In Romans, so we're in chapter 4. So before this, Paul's already explained there's no one righteous, not even one. And so to do that, he quotes back in, in the Psalms. He says there's no one that's good before God. And then we could evidence that just if we look, like the idea that he's perfect is so silly because just look at Abraham's life. So he, uh, one, you could look at what happened to him in Hagar and how he mistreated her. Or how about... Um, what if Abimelech stood before the Lord? How would he speak about Abraham? Would it be praise? No. Because Abraham wronged Abimelech. If, if you remember back in the Old Testament, um, he's traveling. Abraham is traveling with his wife, and he goes to this greater nation, and he's like, oh, uh, they're going to kill me and take my wife because she's beautiful, which like props to her for being beautiful, but like bad thinking. And so he says, instead of saying she's my wife, he says, she's my sister, and, and she can go into your harem to this this king, this ruler. And uh, God was gracious to him. In the middle of the night, Abimelech has this dream where God says, I'm going to kill you and lots of people because of what you've done with Sarah, what you might do with Sarah. And Abimelech's like, I haven't done anything. She just got here. Like, I haven't touched her. And so he wakes up and, and he brings Sarah back to her husband, Abraham. And, and, sa- and then Abimelech's like, what are you doing, man? Like, you almost got me killed by your lie. You were deceitful and almost killed me. Abraham, he made some mistakes. He was not righteous before the Lord. See, no one can boast before the Lord. I cannot boast before the Lord. You cannot boast before the Lord. So how do you prove to the Jews that Abraham could not and would not boast before the Lord either? How how do you help explain this to the Jews? What does he say in in chapter 4, verse 2? He says, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and was credited to him for righteousness. So Paul appeals to his fellow Jews and he says, what should we look to? There's one thing we should look to, scripture. Let's look to the word of God. And I love that because he says, what does the scripture say? He doesn't say scriptures. He says, we have all of one agreed upon Old Testament that we look to. Let's all look to the same book. Uh, And then he he says, why why is the scripture the authority? Because it's the word of God. So let's look to the word of God to answer the question that we all agree upon. And that's cool because today we're in the same place. 
we have an agreed-upon book that's been inspired by God that we can rely on. We can say, I don't know what to do here, or that's wrong. Why is that wrong? Or how should I know what to do? What does the scripture say? We can go back. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All scripture is inspired by God, profitable for teaching, for rebuke, for correcting, and training in righteousness. So the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. If you want to be equipped for every good work, look to God's word. You want to be complete? God will teach you how. So he says, look, let's look to the scripture. What does the scripture say about Abraham? So he, he looks back in the Old Testament. He goes back to Genesis chapter 15. And this is what it says. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. It's so simple. Abraham believed God and he was righteous. It doesn't say Abraham believed God and did lots of stuff and it was credited him for righteousness. He just believed. And once he believed, the credit came to him. God already gave it to him. So it's like now that you've believed, this is yours. And it wasn't for his perfection. It wasn't for his obedience. It wasn't for all the cool things that Abraham did do in his life. It was that he believed God. He trusted God. How else did Paul see Abraham as different? Uh, Abraham, Paul saw Abraham that he was righteous before the law and before circumcision. Abraham was righteous before the law was given and before he had circumcision. So this is, this is that passage, nine, verses 9 through 12. And the issue in this passage, what he's trying to explain is timing. So he's saying, because they would say, you're righteous because of your circumcision. And he says, well, when was Abraham declared righteous? After he was circumcised? Verse 9. Is this blessing only for the circumcised then, or is it also for the uncircumcised? For we say faith was credited to Abraham for righteousness. In what way then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? It was not while he was circumcised, but uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So before he was circumcised, he says, it, he says, you're righteous by faith. This was to make him the father of all who believe, who are not circumcised, so, so that righteousness may be credited to them also. In other words, Abraham's the father of all people. He's not just for the Jews. He says, Abraham came for everybody, everybody who believes. They don't have to have this sign and this seal. He says, and when he became the father of the circumcised, who are not only circumcised, but also following the footsteps of faith, our father Abraham had while he was still uncircumcised. His final argument, he, he's like, listen, he, he's, he's the sign. So the sign points to something. He points to God. He's the seal. He's the, the circumcision is the guarantee. But those things happen after he already had this promise from the Lord. We all agree on that. We, all look at, we can all see that as we look to the scriptures. So who can stand before God? Who's able to, to stand in God's presence? Only those who are made righteous by faith before God. It doesn't matter how many good things you've done. It's only if you've been made right by faith before God. And so in, in an effort to solidify his argument, Paul says, hey, listen, this is Abraham. This is the guy. But uh, let's look to another person you think is pretty important. Your most famous and important king. Let's look at King David. David backs up what Abraham says. So in verse 6, he says, Likewise, David also speaks of blessing of a person who comes who God credits righteousness apart from works. Uh, so, so he says, David, David agrees with this, that God credits righteousness apart from works. How do we know that? He quotes Psalm 32. So he looks at the scripture again. Psalm 32, it says, Blessed are those whose lawless acts are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the person the Lord will never 
charge with sin. And so we don't know when David like necessarily wrote this or why necessarily he's writing this, but David had a pretty big sin, some pretty big sins that were forgiven. Sometimes we can feel like I've got too many sins. I have too many things. Like God, he, he, when he sees me, what he sees is that. What I feel is that. I always feel condemned. David should have felt that because David had, had an adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. Uh, he ends up killing Uriah through using, using war to put him in a place where he would die. So he essentially murders Uriah. Um, and so he's in this place of, of grief. And, and even that, that child that, that came from Bathsheba ends up dying because of his sin. So can you imagine the, the guilt that he would have felt? And he writes, I think probably wrote Psalm 32 in light of that. Um, Blessed, happy are those whose lawless acts are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the person the Lord will never charge with sin. It's an amazing thing. And I love, too, that Paul, he takes, he takes the idea. We use a lot of like technical terms like righteousness and justification. But here he connects them. Like to be, to be righteous means that you can go before God and you're in good standing. If you're unrighteous, uh, the unrighteous will be judged and condemned, and they'll be separate from God. But to be declared righteous is the best news. So like God sees you and thinks, he thinks you're good, you're right. How do we, how do we made good and right before God? Uh, he says here, it's by being forgiven. That's what God credits the righteousness apart from works. And you see that in that David is forgiven. And so <clears throat> righteousness or justification, these are like positional terms. Like, like if you're in court and the judge says, I judge you not guilty, um, that's, that's what it's, that would be what it's akin to. Um, but what I like about, about this passage from David is that he is justified, he is righteous, but he talks about it in terms of forgiveness, what he experiences, what he feels. And this is the beauty of the gospel is that, that, is that you're forgiven, that all the guilt that you, you know you should feel, that you do have, Jesus says, I take that on the cross, and what I give back to you is my righteousness, what I offer back to you. And that's why the Lord will never charge you with sin. It won't be held against you anymore because you put your hope and your trust and your faith in Christ that, that when he dies on the cross, that, that, that sin is on him, but he offers you back his rights. It's like you trade places. He's paid your payment and you receive his benefit. This is the grace of God. Um, this is the good news. So let's, let's finish with, with verses four and five. And I want to talk about these because as I read the passage, these stuck out to me. Like I couldn't, they just like kind of rubbed me a little bit. And so, <clears throat> uh, let's look at them. Verses 4 and 5, and this is in the section, The Offense of Grace. The Offense of Grace. Now, to the one who works, pay is not credited as a gift, but as something that's owed. But to the one who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited for righteousness. Uh, I think Paul, it almost feels like Paul is purposely like, poking the bear. <laughs> he says, the one who does not work. It, to me, it sounds like the one who's lazy, the one who does nothing. That guy, he's godly. But you workers, no, you're not godly. Uh, why does he do that? Why does he purposely use, I think, such strong language? It's because we like to think that, that God's forgiveness or justification, you know, like, like Jesus can do this much, and I just work a little bit. If I just do a little bit, like I can show that God... I can affirm what God's done. Or I work really hard and I just need a little bit of God's grace. And what he says is, no, no, there's no like, it's 100% and zero. 
The one who does not work but believes in whom he justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited for righteousness. Nothing that we can do will justify us before the Lord. We don't have to work. We don't need to do anything. But that's, that feels kind of wrong. It, it, why does it feel wrong? It's because our whole society has been built on a meritorious system. Like, like you do good, you get rewarded. You do something bad, you get punished. You're lazy, you don't get paid. You know, like, everything we do is, is outside of grace. Like, the way they operate our day-to-day life. And we feel that, too, because uh, we have inside us a sense of right and wrong. So if everyone was operating, like, we should just give each other grace all the time, then we wouldn't really operate in the system of right and wrong, right? Like, we wouldn't have that meritorious system because we'd all be doing the wrong thing all the time, expecting grace all the time. Uh, we can feel that. I, I feel that a little bit in my own desire to see things happen right and wrong. Like, like society should be built in a way that, that that makes sense. And even what's funny about that is even my desire to, to have these social norms has been perverted by my own sin. I was thinking about that this week. I, um, I went to, to Costco, and I was going to buy a, a rotisserie chicken. I like to call it a turkey. That's what it looks like. The things are huge. If you ever need to eat a few meals, get yourself a rotisserie chicken from Costco. So anyway, I'm buying this thing, and it's the only place in Costco other than you check out where there's a line. Like, people want the chickens. And so I get back to the back of the store, and, and there's, like, this group of people waiting because the chickens, they're about to come out. I'm like, all right, good timing by me. So I, I, I post up there, and then they start to roll them out, and they can hardly fit the birds in the plastic, and then people are grabbing them. And, uh, and then this lady in front of me, she grabs, she grabs a bird, and she grabs another bird, then she grabs a third bird. So she grabs three chickens. I don't know what army she's feeding, but she grabs them all, and, and then they keep coming out. And then, uh, what do you know, at the end, there's two people waiting me and this other lady who didn't get chickens. I'm like, uh, and you wouldn't believe it. It took eight more minutes for them to bring out more chickens. <laughs> like, I was so upset. So I'm standing there, and I'm, I'm like, so I'm kind of annoyed because, you know, I'm an American, and eight minutes it seems like forever. And uh, I'm thinking, why did that lady take three chickens? She should have got back in line after she took her first chicken. Then I would have had a chicken, and so would this other lady. And that lasted about a minute, and then I was like, she was right. Like, I'm wrong. Like, she can take as many chickens as she wants. You are so dumb and so self-righteous. Um, and so I had to put on my fake smile and just wait those eight minutes. And um, my point is I have a sense, a deep sense of right and wrong, and even that gets perverted a little bit. Um, and grace, what it does is it goes against our sense of right and wrong. Like, it, it feels alien. Grace feels alien. So why does grace feel so offensive? Why does it feel wrong? Um, well, one reason it feels wrong is we believe in the saying, uh, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Like everything we do is like, it's, 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 a, it's a give and take. And it's supposed to be that way. At least that's the way that we feel. Uh, like if I help you, I kind of expect you to help me. Or if someone helps me, I just expect to help them back. I have, I have a little test I like to do. It's more of like a social experiment that I, that I like to do where if there's a set of double doors, so like doors, like I think it's like for, to make it not so hot or cold in the space, and then another set of doors. So two sets of doors. I like to hold the door on the first one and then go in and see if the person I just held the door for holds the door for me. Um, not because it really matters, but I'm just like, you know, I just like to think, like, do they, how do they feel about this? Uh, it's a test, but almost always they do. Like, we just feel like we need to respond. And the joke's on them because then I'm in front of them. So <laughs> winning. All right. 
we feel that way. We, we think it's supposed to be that way. And so grace, it doesn't operate in that same way. Um, you know, if we think that if we, ser- if we serve Jesus, Jesus then has to pay us back, that he has to compensate us. Like, like if I do enough things, then God has to, has, and that's what he's talking about here. He says, no, you, you don't get paid for serving God. Why? Well, what can we really do for God that God needs? What can I do that God needs? Uh, it's, it, it would be like being in the family of one of, one of these rich people. Like, like you're in Jeff Bezos' family, and you're like, I got to get Jeff, you know, the founder of Amazon, a, a gift for Christmas. What could you buy him that he doesn't already have? <laughs> Nothing. He, own, he owns Amazon. Like, he, he, he can just order it, and it's there. <laughs> you know, like, he has everything. There's nothing, but, so then you get Jeff Bezos nothing for Christmas, or Warren Buffett, or Lana, like, do you get them nothing? It's like, no, there is a way that you can give something to them. You give them, you show that you know them, because what those men also want is not stuff, they also want to be known, just like we want to be known. And so you think, what, what's something that, like, might affect their heart, that shows that there's a relationship between us? Um, but we can't actually give them anything that they need. In the same way, we can give God nothing. There's nothing that God needs from me. There's nothing that God needs from you. He doesn't need anything. But what God, does, what God wants is you. And he wants to be known by you. And so in the same way, like with, with, those, with those wealthy, it's like God just wants our heart. He desires a, a, to know us and to have a, a relationship with us, a unity with us, but not in a way that we earn it because we can't, but because we give it. And he gives it back. John 17, 3 says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, What's eternal life? That they may know you, the only true God, and the one you've sent, Jesus Christ. Where does eternal life come from? Knowing the Father and knowing the Son. And, and, and we can't give for that. We just, we just have to know. And that's what happened with Abraham. He knew, he believed, and he was credited with righteousness. So grace offensive because we think, we act like, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. And grace says, that's not how it works. At least not with God. Why else is grace offensive? We're insecure paying back the perceived debt. We're insecure paying back a perceived debt. This is a sort of a variation from the last one, but when someone does something for you and then you feel like you owe them, one reason people don't like, and sometimes I don't like to be served, is because I'm afraid I can't give back enough. Like, you give me so much, and what I would give you is pretty pathetic. Like, I don't have the skills you have, or I don't have the money you have, or I don't have the... And so in my pride, sometimes it's hard to receive gifts. It's hard to receive blessings from others. Even if they're like, no, I just want to I just like wanna help you. It's like, no, 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 no. And I say no because I, I'm afraid I'm gonna have to help them back and I can't do it well enough. And what can we do for God? We we can't ever give God back enough for what he gives us in the life of his son. And so grace is hard because we, we can't sufficiently give back to God. Why else is grace offensive? Well, we don't like grace because it feels unjust. Grace feels wrong. People sometimes will ask the question, like, can a murderer be saved? Could God forgive a murderer? Could God forgive Hitler, the, one of the worst of murderers? Uh, and what they're really asking is, would it be unjust for God to forgive the worst people? Like, does God's grace only go so far? And this is, I get it. I hear that question. Jesus answers it. He says, he says my grace is sufficient in all things. Uh, Listen to Matthew 20. This is a story that Jesus told. He says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. 
After agreeing with the workers on one denarii, so money, uh, he sent them into his vineyard for the day. And he went out about nine in the morning. He saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He said to them, you also go into my vineyard and I'll give you whatever is right. So off they went. About noon, about three, he went out again and did the same thing. And then about five, he went out and found others standing around, said to them, why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? Because uh, no one hired us, they said. Uh, you also go into my vineyard, he told them. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard told his foreman, call the workers and give them their pay, starting with the last and ending with the first. Uh, when those who were hired about five came, they each received one denarii. So when the first came, they assumed they would get more, but they also received a denarii each. When they received it, they began to complain to the, land, to the landowner. These last men, they put in one hour, and you made them equal to us, who bore the burden of the day's work and the burning heat. He replied to them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Didn't you agree with me on a denarii? Take what's yours. Go. I want to give this last man the same I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with what is mine? Are you jealous because I'm generous? So last be first, and the first will be last. Jesus is telling them, what I've promised, it's the same for everyone. It's, it's good for everyone. And we can get self-righteous and think, I, I deserve more. But Jesus is like, no, no, no. There's no one righteous, not anyone. In fact, what all of us deserve is actually the opposite. We deserve to be punished for our sin. But he says, no, no, no I have a great offer for you. It's, I'm going to give you a denarii for the day. But in, in our terms, what he's saying is, heaven is for you. And heaven is going to be awesome. And, and the first and the last are all welcomed to the same place. This is what David described. He says, he says this offer, what, what Jesus is offering to these people is what, is what David understands. Blessed are those whose lawless acts are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the person the Lord will never charge with sin. I offer forgiveness now and always. What Jesus does at the cross, it makes us righteous before God forever. I will never charge you with sin because Jesus already paid for it. No one deserves salvation, but it's offered to everyone. You can't earn it, or else, or else I would owe you something. No, it has to be a gift from me. That gift is the grace of God seen at the cross. And so grace, grace stops being offensive. So there is a time. When is grace not offensive? It stops being offensive when we realize our need for grace. That grace is our only hope. When it, it stops being offensive when we understand the cross. Otherwise, I think grace continues to be offensive. Grace continues to not make sense. Our only hope is what God has done. And what's beautiful about the grace of God is it's, it's an infinite well. It, it, it's, you, can draw, you can draw from it and draw from it and draw from it, and it never goes empty. I love JC's uh, analogy a few weeks ago about the grace of God, that our sin is like a fire, and, and God's grace is like the Pacific Ocean pouring down on that fire. That's how, how great his grace is for us and towards us. It's a wonderful thing. Um, you know, Romans 6, we're going to get there eventually. Uh, it says where, where sin increases, grace increases all the more. God has enough for you. So what should we do about this? You know, if, if, if this is true, what Abraham is saying, if Paul is saying what Abraham is true, why does that matter for us? Well, it matters, one, that if, if you're here and you're like, I don't know, I'm trying to be good, and it's hard, and I feel like I'm failing, and I feel guilty, what it means is you probably don't understand the cross. You probably don't understand what Jesus has done what you need to do is you need to repent of your sin. You say, Lord, I see that I'm a sinner and I've been trying to earn it and I've been failing, but I need your son. So you repent of your sin, you turn to Christ and he says, he says, 
Blessed are those whose lost acts are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the person the Lord will never charge with sin. And so you repent. You turn to God and you receive his forgiveness and his righteousness. If you're here and you're a Christian, then what this should do is put a little bounce in your step. You should leave here like head held high, like, oh, that's right. This is how much God loves me and this is what he's done for me. I can walk confidently in the grace of God for my salvation and for my life. I know I'm not perfect, but I also know God has forgiven me. Uh, Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we thank you so much for the cross. We thank you that, <clears throat> that, that we can't earn it, that it's only by your generosity that we can be forgiven, but that you love us, that you came to seek and save the lost, that you, that you demonstrated your love in giving your life for the world. Lord, I pray that would resonate in our souls today, that resonate in this week as we interact with you and interact with others. Lord, help us be people who also show grace to the world around us, that we would demonstrate Christ and be able to explain his grace towards us as as a reason for us to pass it on to others. Uh, We love you. We need you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.